This is the Rounds Table. Hey there, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for joining us on another exciting episode at the table. And it's exciting because we have a brand new voice or guest or face or whatever you want to call it at the Rounds Table here. Her name is Dr. Katie Whiskar. She is a fellow in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia. And we are very excited to welcome her to the show and hope that she's going to become a regular face on our podcast. Katie, Dr. Whiskar, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the Rounds Table. Thanks so much for having me, Kieran. It's great to be on the show. I've been listening for years back like the Amol Verma era, um, so it's really cool to be a part of it. Oh, we don't say that name around here these days. No, I'm just joking. Amol is still heavily involved, and of course, as the founder, we are indebted to his ingenious initiative. All right, Katie, well, you know I like to jump in then if you're a long-time listener. Let's get right in, and why don't you introduce the article that you chose for this week? All right, so the paper that I chose this week has kind of a long title. It's called The Effect of Low-Fat Versus Low-Carbohydrate Diet on 12-Month Weight Loss in Overweight Adults and the Association with Genotype Pattern or Insulin Secretion. So this was the Diet Fits randomized trial, and this is from JAMA in February of 2018, and the first author was Christopher Gardner. Well, it's certainly a mouthful, but it sounds like you're burning calories and just saying the title. So tell us, Katie, what is the bottom line for this article? So the bottom line is that in this randomized control trial of about 600 non-diabetic overweight adults, there was no difference in weight loss with low-carb versus low-fat diets at 12 months and also no effect of genotype or insulin secretion on the results. All right, well, there's lots to unpack and chew on there. So let's get into the depth of it. Uh, tell us, though, why did you actually choose this article and how does its information and findings fit into the greater context of the literature in this area? Well, I figured you would have a lot of fun making puns about this topic. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I mean, obviously, all the medical implications of obesity and the consequences of the obesity epidemic, and we frequently have these patients in our office, but it's sometimes difficult to know how to counsel them with regards to weight loss. The other thing that's interesting about this study in particular is that there's been some evidence that there may be an influence of genotype and also insulin secretion on weight loss. And I think that personally, we probably all know someone who can eat pasta all day and still lose weight while other people really struggle with that. So there's some preliminary evidence that these authors kind of built upon for this study. Neat. So it sounds like there's going to be some clarification as to dietary strategies, but also a little bit of genetics underlying it all that you may be predisposed to be a weight loss or weight neutral individual versus unfortunately those who just can't seem to shed the pounds despite all of their best efforts. So tell us, Katie, then how did they go about answering this question? So this was a prospective single center randomized control trial uh, that was conducted down in the Stanford Bay Area in California. And who were the patients that they decided to enroll in this study then? So these were adults, so aged 18 to 50, with a BMI of, again, between 18 and 50. Some pretty relevant exclusions would include uh, major comorbidities, so diabetes was the big one there, um, other things like liver disease, kidney disease, cancer, obviously pregnant and lactating women, and then also patients who are taking medications that affect their weight, so psychiatric medications, antihypoglycemics, statins they also included in there. So a decent chunk of patients were excluded from this trial as well. So in essence, it sounds like we're trying to study individuals who are mostly healthy, especially when it comes to things like chronic diseases like diabetes and don't have those diseases. And also, therefore, by extension, aren't on medications. And a lot of antihyperglycemics are also weight loss uh, therapies 
or have weight losses associated with one of their effects. So is that kind of who we're trying to capture here? Yeah, totally. So these would be patients who we would see in our office or maybe uh, primary care doctors would see, ideally before the diabetes set in. And this would be a tool that we could use with those patients to try to prevent some of these complications down the road. Ah, chew on that fat for a little bit while there. Here we go. So tell us what was the intervention? I can't help myself. I'm sorry. And I know you've been hanging out with Paxson, but it's too easy. I, I do appreciate this, this study. It gives me a lot of options. Uh, so tell us, Katie, what was the intervention for the trial? So the intervention was a 12-month weight loss intervention. There was a one-month kind of run-in period and then a 12-month period where groups were assigned to one of two diets. Uh, and throughout that period, they also had counseling sessions uh, by a registered dietitian. So the two diets were either a low-fat diet where they were instructed to minimize as much as possible things like oils, fatty meats, whole fat dairy, nuts, that kind of thing, versus a low carbohydrate group. So that group minimized bread, cereals, grains, rice, starchy vegetables, etc. And really importantly, both groups were told to minimize sugar, refined flours, trans fat, so things that we know to be bad for us, to maximize vegetable intake and to eat mostly whole foods. So this was an educational intervention uh, as opposed to providing individuals with a set diet? Yes, definitely. Uh, which is important, I think, when we think about the implications of this, because obviously it's going to be much more realistic to educate someone about a dietary pattern rather than actually have to provide the food for your patients. And how long did they intervene on these individuals for and then follow them up? The intervention lasted 12 months, and then they, they measured their weight loss at 12 months and throughout that period as well. But the intervention lasted for the duration of the kind of follow-up period, I guess you would say. I see. So speaking of weight loss as an outcome, what was the actual primary outcome and how did they measure it? So the primary outcome they looked at was weight loss at 12 months, measured with a standard scale. They didn't actually specify, but I assume kind of a digital scale. Uh, and the other thing, coming back to kind of the genotype thing that we mentioned earlier, they also measured in these groups prior to the initiation of the weight loss intervention, they measured three specific genes that have been shown in prior research to have an effect on weight loss. And they also measured insulin secretion. So one of the things they looked at in the trial was the interaction between diet type and genotype. And so whether having a matched diet to your genotype made you lose more weight. So someone with a low carb genotype, whether they lost more weight on a low carb diet versus someone with that genotype on a low fat diet. Right, I can't help but feel like this tastes a little bit like personalized medicine in the sense that you could tailor a dietary strategy if it turned out to be effective to your underlying genotype when it comes to insulin secretion, et cetera. It is, I think that's absolutely kind of what they're getting at. and. You know, in all areas, we're starting to see a push towards more and more personalized medicine. Uh, so this was really trying to see if we can prescribe specific diets that we know based on genotype testing will be more effective for our patients and save them some of that frustration that they often experience with weight loss. Sounds pretty neat. Uh, any secondary outcomes that you thought were worth pointing out? They looked at so other measures like lipid profile, blood pressure, etc. But I think for our purposes, I think weight loss was sort of the most relevant intervention to look at. Okay, so I finally get to say this and it actually makes sense in this trial. You've set the table wonderfully now, serve the dinner. What are the results of this study? All right. First of all, I'd say that both groups followed their prescribed diets very well. And if you look at their tables, they achieved a very good sort of separation of calories. So the low fat group really did stick to a low fat diet and the low carb group ditto. So in terms of weight loss, there was no difference in weight loss at 12 months. 
the low carb group lost an average of six kilograms and the low fat group lost an average of 5.3 kilograms. So no statistically significant difference. Also found kind of disappointingly that there was no effect of the interaction between diet and their kind of matched versus unmatched genotype uh, or diet on and their level of insulin secretion. Uh, so that was, I think, not what they were hoping for, but an interesting finding nonetheless. Okay. And did they get a sense of, let's say, the personality type of these individuals? So did they measure things like smoking and exercise and in interest in dieting, that, that kind of thing, is to sort of get at the sense of how motivated somebody might be to, to diet and lose weight? No, they didn't really look at uh, things like smoking uh, or physical activity. They did encourage all the participants to comply with kind of general recommendations for physical activity, but they didn't sort of drill down uh, a bit further. And in terms of motivation, I think the fact that these people are volunteering to be in this study probably speaks to a degree of motivation, uh, but they didn't actually try to measure that in any way. All right, so there's an element of selection bias in the population just by a volunteer-based trial, but nevertheless... It's interesting, you know, in your most motivated individuals, so to speak, there's still no difference in the weight loss strategy. So in that sense, there may not be a huge effect of bias playing, at least on the two arms uh, that seem to be well balanced otherwise. Okay. Any interesting points or observations you wanted to make? Anything that caught your eye about this trial in itself? Yeah. First off, I think the fact that both groups achieved kind of a reasonable amount of weight loss is, is kind of impressive. They both lost over 5% of their body weight in, in terms of disease prevention and affecting insulin resistance and all those kinds of things. That's, that's a pretty significant outcome. And then the second thing is, to me, I think that perhaps the similarities in these diets are maybe more important than the differences. And by that, I mean, if you look at their tables, both groups consumed the same amount of calories. It was about 500 calories less than their baseline, and they kind of were successful in maintaining their calorie deficit through the trial. And some of the kind of fundamental advice given to both groups was pretty sound dietary advice. So eat mostly vegetables, uh, eat whole foods, minimize sugars. And so I think to me that speaks to the fact that if you're following kind of those sound dietary principles and restricting your calories somewhat, it doesn't matter maybe as much how you make up those calories. I think that's helpful to know. It's interesting, though, that a trial like this exists in 2018. I guess the, the twist about the personalized medicine is interesting, but... It always still seems to shock me, and this came up on a previous episode around prevention of diabetes, is that the most effective strategy is just to roll up your sleeves and do the hard work and cut out the calories. And it's tough and it's not, you know, easier said than done. But at least this trial confirms that you can lose, you know, six kilograms, almost 15 pounds if you just restrict the, the calories in your diet no matter what kind of calories those are. Yeah, I think everyone wants with weight loss kind of a magic bullet and something that's all of a sudden going to be more successful and easier. But this is not it. And I don't know if we're going to find it. <laughs> we, maybe it doesn't exist. Who knows? Uh, so take it home for us, Katie. What do you think the main learning points of this article are for you, for the listeners? I mean, I think to me, sort of as we've said, I think the, the main learning point is that in this randomized trial, there was no difference in 12-month weight loss between a low-carb and a low-fat diet. Kind of outside, as we said, a diet focusing on whole foods, plants, minimal sugars, etc. And unfortunately, we didn't see an impact of kind of personalized medicine with an influence of genotype, but perhaps that's something we'll see more of in the future. So kind of as you said, I think that, I don't know if you've read any of the books by Michael Pollan. He wrote like In Defense of Food and the Omnivore's Dilemma, but he kind of summarizes 
dietary advice in like three very short sentences. He says, eat real foods, not too much, mostly plants. And I think that's kind of what this trial shows. Well, that diet fits this diet fits trial. There it is. Thank you, Katie, for that. That was a great, great coverage and an excellent introduction on the show. Let's switch over now and I'll tell you about the study that I chose to cover for this week. Uh, This is called the SPACE trial, and it looks at the effect of opioid versus non-opioid medications in patients with chronic back pain or hip or knee osteoarthritis. And this was published by Aaron Krebs and colleagues in JAMA as well in March of 2018. All right, Kieran, great. That sounds fascinating. Why don't you start off by telling us what the bottom line of this study is? In this unblinded, pragmatic, randomized clinical trial that included 240 patients, the use of opioid versus non-opioid medication therapy did not result in significantly better pain-related function over 12 months. So you saw 3.4 versus 3.3 on an 11-point scale at 12 months, respectively. And so, Katie, I think overall this study does not support the initiation of opioid therapy in individuals with moderate to severe chronic back pain or hip or knee osteoarthritis pain. Thankfully, I think the world of medicine and medical research is finally getting it. Opioids have the potential to cause significant harm. We're finally uh, accepting that. Um, and, And current guidelines actually do discourage opioid prescribing for chronic pain. So we've made strong headway from the unfortunate times in the late 70s, early 80s, 90s, where where physicians were pushing opioids for chronic pain. But now I hear this question more and more. So if not opioids for pain, then what? What are our options to treat significant pain in these individuals? And as chronic low back pain is one of the most common reasons, if not the most common reason for an individual to visit their family physician's office, and certainly common in the emergency department, having pain management strategies that do not involve opioids are important, and those that are evidence-based are more important. But unfortunately, we have limited evidence around the treatment of long-term chronic pain and the outcomes when using opioids compared to non-opioids for that chronic pain. So this study, thankfully, wanted to set out to compare just exactly that, opioids versus non-opioids, over a 12-month period on pain-related function, pain-related intensity, and adverse effects. That's great. And I I mean, I totally agree. I think we've both obviously seen uh, some of the consequences of opioid use in terms of overdoses and chronic dependency and everything. So it's great to see uh, some more evidence emerging that's going to support other therapies in, in place of opioids for chronic pain. All right, Karen, why don't you tell a bit about uh, the methods for this study? So what was the study design and where did it take place? So Katie, this took place uh, in Minneapolis at the Veterans Affairs Primary Care Clinics, and it involved 62 primary care clinicians uh, between June 2013 and December of 2015. Now, they, the eligibility criteria for the patients were actually quite diverse and it facilitated enrollment of a broad uh, group of patients in primary care. Um, And the neat thing about this trial that we'll get into is that the interventions were delivered with flexibility in the medication selections and dosage. So patients were allowed to participate in non-pharmacologic pain therapies outside of the study, and were also encouraged to complete outcome assessments regardless of their participation in those activities. Okay, so speaking of patients, who were the patients included in this study? So they included individuals with chronic back pain or chronic hip or knee osteoarthritis pain that was moderate to severe despite analgesic use. And they used their electronic medical records as a tool for screening to identify these patients and approach them for the trial. Now, chronic pain, it was defined as pain that was nearly every day, um, and it had to occur for six months or more. 
So I think it's a fair definition. Now to define moderate or, or se severe pain, they used a score of five or more on a three item pain intensity, interference and enjoyment of life and interference with general activity scale. So this is called the PEG scale and it ranges from zero to 10. Now, patients who were excluded, importantly, to point out, were those who were already on long-term opioid therapy. That creates a whole other world of uh, pain management and complicated uh, medicine around those types of individuals. And of course, anybody who had contraindications to any of the study medications that they plan to use, along with those who had severe depression, so only severe depression, but not other types of depression, or substance abuse disorders. So I think that this is a really fairly designed trial and the patients that are trying to answer this question in. Uh, all right, so what was the intervention for the study? So all patients in either arm, opioid or non-opioid, received structured symptom monitoring and a treat-to-target approach to medication management. And that was delivered by a pharmacist who was taking them through and assessing their pain and trying to get it under to a certain control. And what they did was they actually initially stratified patients uh, whether they had back pain uh, or knee osteoarthritis, uh, those being sort of two separate beasts of pain, so to speak. And then those individuals, after they were stratified, were randomized to receive opioid versus non-opioid pain management strategies. So remember, it's kind of a strategy that the pharmacist helps coach people through and get to his target for pain control. So the initial medication regimen was determined by their assigned group that they were, that they were put in, and the considerations such as patient preferences and comorbidities were measured as well. Now, if you were put in the opioid arm, this was in graded steps as far as your escalation of the medications and types you were using. They started with immediate release morphine, hydrocodone, or acetaminophen combination, or oxycodone. You stepped up to long-acting opioids if that was not adequate. You moved beyond that to transdermal fentanyl. And ultimately, the maximum dose of opioids uh, that could be used were 100 milligrams of morphine equivalents. Okay, so a reasonable dose. A reasonable dose and what the guidelines, at least in Canada now, would say you should not exceed when prescribing morphine or other opioids as far as morphine equivalents. Now, the non-opioid arm, again, was done in graded steps. It started with acetaminophen or NSAIDs. Obviously, there's going to be some people who can't use or it's not recommended to use NSAIDs in. Um, and then you stepped up to adjuvant oral medications. Those are things like amitriptyline and gabapentin, or if possible, topical treatments like lidocaine could be used or topical NSAIDs. And then if that failed, you stepped up further to the use of tramadol, pregabalin, or duloxetine as well. Now, overall follow-up visits were monthly until, they were, uh, until individuals were on a stable regimen of analgesia, and then visits occurred every one to three months. Uh, visits were always in person at 6 and 12 months and when possible uh, otherwise, uh, but mostly by telephone if not being able to be done in person in between. Okay, great. And what was the primary outcome that they were looking at? So they really wanted to measure the pain-related function, which was assessed using the seven-item brief pain inventory interference scale. So this seven-item scale has scores from 0 to 10, and a higher score is worse function or intensity of pain. They defined a one-point difference on that uh, seven-item brief pain inventory as the minimal clinically important difference, and they used a 30% reduction from baseline as the minimally clinically important difference to define moderate improvement in pain. Okay, so you could have one point change on the scale, that was important, or you could have a 30% change in your baseline scores 
as a moderate improvement in your pain. Now, they also measured a primary adverse outcome because, of course, some of these medications have the propensity for harm. And they used a validated patient-reported checklist of 19 related medication symptoms, you know, things that you would, uh, would be typical for any one of those individual medications. So it, that scale can apply to the different classes of medications. They're not just, say, opioid-specific. And then they lastly tried to measure some surrogates for opioid misuse using validated research scales. And they did that in a variety of different ways. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, in particular, the things they tried to do to get at that harm piece, because that's certainly a big uh, thing we think about when we think of adverse effects of opioids. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, that's great, Kieran. So I think we have a good idea of the study. So why don't you tell us what they found? So 120 patients were assigned uh, in each group, and 65% of the patients overall had back pain. So that kind of gives you a spread of who we're dealing with in the pain. Most Your typical patient was a middle-aged Caucasian male who had a high school education and was currently employed or retired. So there was a higher proportion of individuals with a preference for opioids in the non-opioid group. Now I point that out, Katie, not because it's a problem with the uh, randomization process potentially in the trial, but more about how it has implications for the, for the overall results. So if you're in the non-opioid group and you actually had a preference for the opioid group, you might be more likely to report that your pain is inadequately controlled because you, you wanted to be on the opioid pain, pain arm. And the effect of that might be that you would bias the results toward no difference between the two arms. Um, and overall, that's actually what we see. So the primary finding was that there was no difference in the pain scale between the groups at baseline or at 12 months. The overall change in the scale was about a 0.1 difference uh, between the two. However, much like your diet trial, pain scores improved overall in both arms by about two points, remembering that the minimally clinically important difference is only one point on the scale. So in either strategy, we improved pain uh, significantly overall. There just wasn't a more efficacious strategy between opioids and non-opioids. Now, expectedly, I think, you saw that there was a higher rates of adverse events uh, based on self-reported symptoms in the opioid group, whether you thought that was real or you thought that was a reporting bias because patients knew they were taking opioids. I'll leave for that to you to decide, but you certainly know that opioids have a high rates potential for, for harm. And there was no differences in the abuse measures between groups using those validated scales. Although I guess they, with the abuse measures, they only followed them for 12 months. Is that right? They didn't sort of continue looking long-term and sort of in terms of some of the longer-term effect. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I think you guys out in, uh, out in UBC who'd see a lot of uh, and sort of saw the first wave in Canada of the opioid abuse probably have a better appreciation that some of these uh, misuse and abuse dependency problems can develop over a longer period of time than just 12 months. So I think that's an excellent point. All right. Uh, so any sort of interesting points or observations you wanted to make about this study? Well, I kind of touched on it already, but patients and physicians were not blinded, even though the outcome assessors were, were blinded. Now, that has a huge implication for bias. So we have a self-reporting pain scale that's reported by patients, and we talked about how somebody who in the non-opioid group who has a preference toward the opioid group could affect the overall results. That also has the potential to introduce outside interventions. So there's all sorts of other things, physiotherapy, yoga, acupuncture, chiropractic, that people might seek out for their pain. And you might seek that more often than 
somebody else if you're on opioids than somebody who's not on opioids or vice versa. So you could imagine how that might affect the overall results. And finally, physician probing may be affected if they know their patients are on opioids versus non-opioids or vice versa. So maybe I spend more time asking you about your pain or I'm more interested to see if you actually, you know, am, am influencing your reporting of your pain and your own perception of your pain by the amount that I ask you about it because I am interested in one group versus the other being more successful. And that may also influence the results overall. Mm -hmm. I think these pragmatic trials are always really interesting because they, I mean, obviously provide a lot of good real world data because this is actually how these medications are going to be used. But there's always kind of a lot of caveats to how you interpret it because you're not quite as sure as to what's causing the actual effect. So, all right. Do you think there's any important limitations for this study? Well, I think those are sort of the limitations and interesting observations that I would point out. Um, one thing I thought that was kind of neat, though, was that they actually asked patients prior to the trial which treatment they would find preferable and their expectations for improvement. Now, while we mentioned that that was unfortunately a little bit unbalanced at baseline, that I think is what is the sort of crown jewel for me in this trial, because it's not only just did this drug work better than the other, it has the added influence of sort of underlying perception and preference involved in it as well. And so I thought that was really well done on their part. So I guess after kind of after all that discussion and the pros and the cons, do you think that this is this trial is valid? Can we kind of take this at face value or do you think we'll have to be cautious in how we apply this to patients? I think much like your study, that there is a promising message that regardless of the analgesic strategy that you employ, you can make a significant improvement in patients' overall self-reported pain scores. So we can control pain, and we can control pain both with opioids and non-opioids. Now, whether you thought that bias played a big role and potentially opioids should have been or were more effective, it was just lost because of that bias, I don't think that the difference that they saw, this 0.1 difference in the scales, could be overcome by controlling for that bias in a slightly better way. So what I'm trying to say, Katie, is that I actually do think that this was a very well done trial, that the results are valid, and that we really should start pushing an evidence-based or an evidence-informed discussion around the fact that non-opioids can be equally as effective as opioids for controlling pain over a 12-year period for these indications. Well, Katie, that was a great discussion. Thanks for leading me through that. It's now time for my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Katie, what are you reading about on the west coast of Canada? Uh, well, Karen, as I said, I'm mostly reading guidelines these days because my board exams are coming up. But I did read an interesting article. So this is actually also in JAMA. I realize this is a very JAMA-heavy show. Well, we are internal medicine uh, internists. We like JAMA, of course. <laughs> Uh, but this was uh, kind of an editorial piece about p-value thresholds. And this is probably much more um, sort of down your alley than it is mine. But it was talking kind of about the, the fallacy of this p-value. And I feel like um, a lot of us are kind of taught or we end up interpreting the p-value as this like magical line in the sand, you know, below which everything is important and significant and above which nothing matters. And of course, the truth is a lot more gray than that. And this article actually proposes lowering the p-value by tenfold, so to 0 0.005, to try to kind of tell some of the signal from the noise as a way of sifting through sort of ever-increasing amounts of research and big data uh, and trying to decide what's actually clinically significant. So something to think about for sure. I think that 
you know, every time I'm reading an article, I'm trying to get myself to not only look at the p-value and whether it's significant, but also sort of to think critically about the article and, you know, as we do on the rounds table, I guess. Fantastic. Well, I always like it when somebody who describes themselves as a non-epidemiologist is wading into the world of epidemiology. I, I agree that, that that article caught a lot of attention among some of my colleagues. and I did, I did think that was a very interesting read. So thank you for bringing that forward. So I was reading about the Right to Try bill, which was passed in the House of Representatives in the United States on March 23rd, 2018. And without going into too much detail for the purposes of the good stuff, I just wanted to say that it's a bill that is going to allow terminally ill patients to access experimental drugs without the approval of the Food and Drug Administration. So kind of a neat way because as you know, everyone knows on this show, these trials have very strict inclusion and exclusion criteria, and there's a whole host of populations, very often the terminally ill or end-stage individuals who are always excluded from these types of trials and have very little evidence around how to, to help them with our uh, medications that we have. Um, and so this bill is hoping to open up the barriers to allowing patients to try new experimental drugs before they receive you know, approval on a healthier population given the fact that their lifespan is short and they will likely never live to see the day that those drugs are passed. Hmm. That's very interesting. I mean, I think we, we see all those patients um, in the hospital often. So I, I wonder if that'll have big implications on our practice kind of in the near future. Yeah, and I mean, it is a U.S. bill, but uh, it certainly can trickle up to Canada and it'll be interesting to see if it affects us overall in the future. Well, Katie, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the rounds table today. We really enjoyed you bringing the articles to the show. And certainly we hope you're going to be back to join us again in the future. And until then, good luck on your exam, which is coming up shortly. Thanks, Karen. It was really great to be on after listening for, for so many years. So thank you so much for having me. And I hope to be back. Well, we certainly hope so, too. The rounds table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Anthony Maher, segment developer, Shaliza Halani, and faculty mentor and founder of the Roundstable, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research because who knows what they have in store for us.